Welcome to the Education Gadfly Show. I'm your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute. Today, Natalie Neris and Hal Woods of Kids First Chicago join us to discuss what Chicago's mayoral runoff election means for the city's schools. Then, on the Research Minute, Amber looks into the effectiveness of mindfulness-based programs on student mental health and resilience. All this on the Education Gadfly Show. This is the Education Gadfly Show. He likes to hover over me and, and talk about how I'm a small, balding man. This is the stuff you can look forward to someday, David. What does Gadfly say? Hello, this is your host, Mike Petrilli of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, here at the Education Gadfly Show and online at FordhamInstitute.org. And now, please welcome my special guests for this week, Natalie Neris and Hal Woods. Natalie and Hal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Yeah, they are both at Kids First Chicago. Natalie is the Chief of Community Engagement, and Hal is the Chief of Policy. Also joining us, as always, David Griffith. Hey, Mike. Always a pleasure. Yeah, well, you know, our listeners probably know what we're going to talk about this week. Uh, We don't always go local, but uh, there's a good reason to talk about Chicago. You may have heard that there's a bit of an election happening in Chicago. In fact, the mayoral runoff election. uh, It's featuring Brandon Johnson, who is a former organizer for the Chicago Teachers Union, and Paul Vallis, uh, the former superintendent of Chicago, uh, who's also known to be an education reform guy, a charter school supporter. So let's do that on Ed Reform Update. Tell us a little bit about what's going on. So these two candidates were number one and number two in the election that was held a few weeks ago. Uh, Neither of them got 50%. So now we've got a runoff election. Uh, How's it looking on the ground? Is there a favorite? Does it look like one candidate is more likely than the other? And is education playing a big role here? We have two candidates that are coming down. There'll be an April 4th runoff election uh, between Brandon Johnson uh, and Paul Vallis. Right now, both candidates are raising a lot of money. Uh, so Paul Vallis raising a lot of money from the business community. Right now, uh, Brandon Johnson has raised about $5 million from the Chicago Teachers Union. Um, they actually just raised uh, dues by $8 uh, a month uh, from CTU members to help put in another $2 million um, into, into his campaign prior to the April 4 runoff. There's a big chunk of undecided voters, um, but education, um, there was just a torrent of articles over the weekend about the education stances of both candidates. And it's going to be a major issue in terms of where voters uh, decide to uh, put their uh, support behind. This has been a tough couple of years in Chicago on the education front. Is it fair to say, like a lot of big cities, uh, student enrollment way down, big learning loss issues, mental health issues? Natalie, is there a sense from parents what's on parents' minds as you do your engagement work there in Chicago? Yeah, I mean, right now, parents are really concerned about a couple of things. Um, as you probably also know, Chicago will be having a fully elected school board. Uh, 2025 is the first year, 10 districts, and it'll be 20 districts in 2027. And so right now, I think there's a slew of things. In addition to wondering what's going to happen with the elected school board and how that's going to change their child's education, parents care about teacher quality. They care about social emotional learning coming off of the pandemic especially, and funding. So the parents that we work with have prioritized teacher quality, social emotional learning, and equitable funding. Um, I would say on the ground, as far as Vallis and Johnson go, from my perspective as a lifelong Chicagoan, someone who's been a teacher and a school leader in the district, the city for me feels incredibly divided. 
you can drive from the south side to the north side and you sort of just see by community area um, what communities are supporting which candidates. So it feels it feels like a very divided city right now. I would assume that that's breaking down in large part by race. Is that fair to say? Or is it uh, other divisions that are showing up as far as we can tell? I would say somewhat, but also just um, values. I think one of the things that stands out to me is uh, Vallis's being his endorsement by the Fraternal Order of Police, support of police, whereas Johnson really wants to take a more holistic approach to policing. Uh, Vallis wants to hire more police officers. And so I think that's um, definitely a sticking point for both of them. Yeah, and certainly it sounds like crime has been the big issue in the campaign. And certainly, uh, you know, I've seen a lot of articles about how Paul Vallis framed his his campaign as him being the tough on crime candidate. But this is not the uh, crime uh, gadfly show. This is the education gadfly show. So we're worried about education. I mean, are they running towards their education positions? Is Paul Vallis, you know, making a big deal out of the fact that he used to be superintendent and supports charter schools? Is Brandon Johnson, you know, making a big deal out of the fact that he, you know, comes from the CTU and has the support of the teachers? Or are those stances hurting them in any way? What, what do you see out there, Hal? Well, I think one thing to acknowledge is that public safety has been a major issue in the campaign. It has certainly been an issue that Vallis has been very steadfastly focused on in terms of all of his policy positions, education included, have actually tied back to public safety. So for, for example, Paul Vallis is proposing to keep schools open into the evenings, over the weekends, over holidays. Um, he's made a big emphasis on youth employment. So trying to connect back those positions back to public safety has been a big, uh, a big effect for him. I think he has uh, touted his experience both in Chicago, but also um, in Philadelphia, as well as serving in the recovery district in New Orleans as part of the reason for why he should, uh, that kind of experience of running large bureaucracies is why uh, voters should give him a chance. Brandon Johnson has certainly not run away from his affiliation with the union. Um, the union, is, as you all probably know, has uh, dipped their toe into more social justice issues kind of outside of the classroom over the last few years. So affordable housing, community violence intervention programs. So he is pushing for a lot of ideas and proposals that we have seen, even in, that have been subject to collective bargaining agreement discussions between the district and the union um, over the last few, uh, few uh, agreement cycles. Um, that has been a lot of his uh, policy platforms thus far. And even though you're moving to this elected school board, I guess that's still a few years out, right? And there may be a contract uh, that needs to be negotiated before then. Is that fair to say? The contract is coming up actually at the end of June 2024. So it's a huge uh, change in the government. Or I should say it's a huge question, I think, for Brandon Johnson is, you know, given his affiliation with CTU, uh, given the the campaign funding he's received, can he be objective in those upcoming agreement uh, conversations? Because it'll be at the same time the district will be tapering off from the federal COVID relief dollars. And so how do you ensure that there is an agreement that keeps the district in a solid financial footing going into uh, the years after those COVID relief dollars need to be spent? David, what's on your mind? What are you thinking about with this race? Well, lots of different things, but uh, I don't have as much local context. I'm curious to know, just uh, dig in a little bit more on the enrollment issues that I assume Chicago is dealing with. My sense is that there are lots of sort of half-empty schools um, as there are in big cities. Is that is that accurate? It's accurate. And actually, when they passed the elected school board legislation, they put a moratorium on any school actions until uh, that January 1st, 2025 date that Natalie um, cited earlier to give the elected school board a chance to weigh in on any potential uh, closures. Are people talking about this? I mean, it's, it seems inevitable that some of these schools are going to close at some point in the next decade. But I feel like if I were running for mayor, I wouldn't want to talk about that necessarily. What's your take? 
So no one is uh, explicitly including uh, school closures as part of their uh, their policy platform. However, both candidates have had very different um, perspectives in terms of the lack of uh, enrollment or the declining enrollment that we've seen at CPS. So Paul Vallis has talked about taking underperforming and low enrolled schools and actually converting them. These are neighborhood schools with attendance area boundaries and converting them into magnet schools. And then working with those communities to decide what program they might want to put into the school to make themselves distinctive. Um, he's also talked about basically taking off any charter caps uh, to increase growth of charter schools. And I think that's something that um, as you know, an organization like ours that has looked at you know, 50,000 student decline over the last five years, um, there's probably a little bit of a question about do we really need any new schools um, right now? Brandon Johnson, conversely, has you know, cited the 2013-49 school closures as trauma uh, that many communities faced um, just about a decade ago, um, and has talked about different ways to put new programming into schools, so underutilized schools to put in uh, revenue-generating options like uh, health clinics or other potential options as a way to maximize the footprint of the school building while the education uh, program uh, might be um, uh, revised over the next few years, given that declining enrollment. We will have to leave it there, but we will be watching from a distance, and it'll be interesting to see what happens. Probably more more controversy ahead, no matter which of these candidates wins come April. But thank you, Dr. Natalie Neris and Hal Woods of Kids for Chicago. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thanks. All right. Now it's time for everyone's favorite, Amber's Research Minute. Amber, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Mike. So, Amber, I understand we're going to talk about kind of a social and emotional learning topic today. And and I got to say, over the weekend, uh, Nico had his end of season wrestling banquet, which, by the way, these banquets, I, I think it's not just our high school. This is like a thing now that happens at the end of all these seasons and you get together and all the players and the parents and the coaches and kids get awards. And I got to say, it is so great. It reminds me yet again that uh, sports and other extracurricular activities, this is the way to teach social and emotional learning. I mean, (laughs) first of all, we are so lucky. These coaches are amazing. And they are just up there preaching every bit of these uh, skills, habits, life lessons, whatever you want to call it, that we're trying to teach. Well, what happens to the kids that have no athletic ability? (laughs) Well, now I should be careful how I answer this question. Uh, I'm not implying that he doesn't have athletic ability, but I will say that nobody gets cut from the wrestling team. It's a co-ed wrestling team. And he also played football this fall, which again, nobody gets cut from. You think about these big high schools, 2000 kids, like how many kids, you know, participate in sports or theater or choir or the band or, and it's probably still a smaller percentage than we'd like. It's not the answer, but man, it's such, it, it's so good. It's so good. I, I just wish we could, do more of this sort of stuff earlier. You know, like we've got this great tradition at the high school level, but, you know, not at the middle school or elementary level, which is uh, which is a lost opportunity, I feel like. It's more like clubs in those grades. Yeah. If that, if that. David's shaking his head. What, what, David, what? Nothing, nothing, Mike, nothing. I feel sorry for your progeny. Let's hope the infinite layers of the content created by the internet bury this under a mound of other off-the-cuff observations. No, he actually is. Look, Nico is becoming quite the athlete. He is six feet tall. He is uh, 10 pounds heavier than me at this point. He can totally kick my butt. And uh, he likes to hover over me and and talk about how I'm a small, balding man. So (laughs) this is the stuff you can look forward to someday, David. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. 
<laughs> oh man, we need to get to my research minute. This better not be getting into my time. Okay, yes, research minute, uh, SEL. What what you got for us? A new study out in the Journal of School Psychology. Uh, I haven't used this journal in a while, and it's pretty cool. I need to put it back on my radar. A team of Canadian scholars looked at some mental health needs of students. We know that there's a lot of talk about that, uh, especially before and after the pandemic about mental health. And this meta-analysis looks at one type of intervention called mindfulness-based programs, or MBPs, that are intended to enhance student mental health and resilience. I thought I better look up what mindfulness means because the article didn't really tell us. It is the quality or state of being conscious and aware of something or a mental state achieved by focusing one's awareness on the present moment while calmly acknowledging and accepting one's feelings, thoughts, and bodily sensations often used as a therapeutic technique. That is the official definition. Uh, There's a decent-sized literature uh, that looks at the psychological benefits of mindfulness practices uh, for adults in non-education settings. For adults, uh, we hear that it decreases anxiety and stress, but there's very little research on mindfulness programming in an educational setting at the K-12 and undergraduate levels. Uh, we know that K-12 practitioners uh, and teachers tend to agree that mindfulness is, a, is, is useful, could be useful, but they worry how to make time for it and whether they're equipped to do this type of thing. So what we have here is a comprehensive search across five major databases. They were looking for English language peer-reviewed articles on mindfulness-based programs, again, MBP, up until late 2017, which is when their search uh, stopped. The research, in order to be a part of the meta-analysis, had to utilize a randomized control design, and it had to assess outcomes related to school adjustment, which means uh, attention, self-regulation, impulsivity, interpersonal skills, school-functioning student behavior, academic performance, and mindfulness itself. So lots of different outcomes there. I wasn't quite sure how they measure mindfulness, uh, which they actually mentioned that later. You know, it's hard to figure out how you measure awareness of the moment. But anyhow, uh, analysts identify over 7,000 studies on the topic. Only 46 met their criteria. They compute standardized effect sizes for each outcome and subgroup. They use a random effects model that allows inferences to a broader population of comparable studies. Uh, These studies are all over the map. I'll tell you that first. Um, some are, are longer, some are shorter, they have different content, they have delivery, different delivery methods and so on. So they do at the end try to examine like, does it matter what kind of control group it was? And does it matter who the facilitator is? And so on and so forth. So I'll touch real briefly on those. And they also did some adjustments to control for publication bias, which we know can be an important thing in meta-analyses. All right, findings. At the end of the program, because they did a, a, obviously a post-treatment uh, kind of measure, The effect of MBPs compared to control groups was small for an overall, on the overall school adjustment measure. It was small on academic performance and impulsivity along the lines of 0.19 at post-intervention. It was small to moderate for attention, and it was moderate for mindfulness. Specifically, of the 46 studies, the 19 that assess mindfulness as an outcome had an effect size of 0.5. There were no differences between groups in terms of interpersonal skills, school functioning, 
or student behavior. Uh, and then they found, then they looked at education level. They found that the mindfulness was particularly useful for elementary students and that middle and high school students had significant increases in their school adjustment measure and their mindfulness measure. College undergraduates only saw a significant effect on their educational outcomes. Uh, then they look into how the control group may have affected all these different findings. And this was what was most interesting to me. Only when the comparison group was compared to business as usual did they see significant differences. But when these programs, these mindfulness programs, were compared to an active control condition, and that means that students were receiving another program, but it wasn't focused on mindfulness. It could have been focused on anything else, but it was an active program. There was no difference between the treatment and control group. Analysts say that the active control condition might be incorporating similar components as did the mindfulness programs, including improving student concentration and focus. They also saw impacts when the MPP program was facilitated by an outside facilitator that had experience in mindfulness. But when it was the classroom teacher, whether that teacher was experienced or not, uh, there was no difference. And when the outside facilitator had no experience in mindfulness, they also saw no difference. So it had to be a facilitator with experience in, in doing this sort of thing. So they close with saying, you know, there's many reasons to proceed with caution here. We need to be careful that we don't get too enthusiastic yet about, you know, adding this onto the plate of, of teachers in classrooms. There's a lot of nuance here. And this is still literature that's pretty nascent. Wow. I'm impressed that they found some positive impacts at all. And, and I'm not trying to trash mindfulness here. I will say, as I told Amber beforehand, I have been using a mindfulness app myself. It's actually a really cool free one that I found called Healthy Minds. But it's hard, you know? I mean, it's, gosh, I, I think it's just in my experience. And I've tried meditating at various times over the course of my life. It is really a hard thing to learn how to do. And so for kids to do it, Meanwhile, you know, we're trying all these mindfulness things. And you know what? We have the like the ultimate anti-mindfulness machine that we've given to all of our children called smartphones, as we've talked about on this show recently, right? I mean, you want to teach a kid not to concentrate and to, uh, you know, not be mindful. Boy, just get them used to watching TikTok uh, for hours on end. I don't know. David, What's what do you think? Well, Mike, you're, you're talking to someone who is diagnosed with attention deficit disorder. So strongly focusing on my own navel is not my thing, to put it mildly. And so it's a little hard for me to get outside myself here. I think my biggest concern is just that what we're talking about, I am open to, and I bet it works in some ways, but it strikes me as extremely difficult to pin down despite the fact that we've been talking about it for 15 minutes. It sounds a little like meditation. It sounds a little bit like introspection. The second of those things is almost insanely multidimensional and personal. So, you know, I'm not against it, but I would expect it to depend almost entirely on how it's done and the individual who's conducting it and even the people who are on the receiving end, to, to, to my initial point you know, it's not a brick, you know, you can't stack mindfulness based on the minutes. And to your point, the kids who had an IEP and might have had some kind of diagnosis were not included uh, in the study. So yeah, I'm also I have a lot of questions. One of I mean, like, how long is it? 
I don't know, what's the opportunity cost here, right? How long, I mean, is the idea that it's supposed to last all day or that it sort of accumulates over time? Is it like brushing your teeth? I guess I'm just, I, I could go on and on and on. Yeah, that's the that's the issue with these meta-analyses. You know, it's great that we can calculate effect sizes across a number of studies, but then you're just kind of got all kinds of variation, right, uh, among each among the programs. I'm reminded a little bit of, you know, the restorative justice um, stuff, which I'm also, believe it or not, not hostile to, but it sort of a collection of practices, right, um, that one can imagine being done quite well or quite poorly. And you can even imagine that looking very different depending on, I mean, you can imagine two different ways of doing it very well, and you can imagine the same person doing it completely differently um, with one set of kids and the next set of kids. And I guess I just, I don't know, unless it's a very prescribed regimen that has been rigorously tested. Yeah, but I mean, you're kind of making the point right at the end where if you had any other program that you saw similar impact, you know, it was only when there was no program as a control condition, you know, that they saw the impact. Right. I didn't know what to make of that because any other program isn't really definable either. I had a hard time understanding what like any any other socio-emotional program at all. It's just said a, a, a basically another any kind of active program. That's right. It may not be the program that matters. That may be just a selection effect kind of thing. Right. Schools that are going to make the effort to do something maybe versus nothing. I do think it is apples and oranges. They've tried to make sense of it the best that they could. The conversation you guys are having is right. Whatever we promote, especially in schools nationwide, it needs to be implementable uh, by regular people. And I'm not sure. Mindfulness sounds sounds pretty hard. I can imagine that there's some more structured kinds of things that you can do. Maybe that work in some of these concepts of mindfulness, trying to get kids to notice, you know, when they're feeling emotions, for example, what what's happening and are there some thoughts that they, you know, are going on in their mind about how they think they're not good at math or whatever it is? And to notice that, you know, if they're doing the marshmallow test, notice, what are you feeling? I'm feeling <laughs> hungry, hungry, you know, whatever it is. And, and right, you know, right. speaking of things that don't replicate. Yeah. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> this stuff does matter, you know, and especially if it's a malleable, it's always, always the question too, right? We want stuff that you can teach that kids can get better at not enough to say like, oh, it'd be great if everybody was wonderful at self-regulating. You know, well, it's only if you can improve self-regulation that it matters. It does seem like, you know, getting kids to be aware of their thoughts and emotions and how they might be acting them out. And, and you know, then that's worth teaching if if we can figure out how to do it well. I was just going to say back in the day when I taught, when you had an unruly class, sometimes all you had to do was say, we're going to be quiet for 30 seconds. And it reoriented the whole atmosphere and group and sort of helped them to concentrate and everything else. You just needed sort of a break between the loudness and the, you know, the craziness and then just kind of getting yourself in a new frame of mind. So I guess, it, again, it depends on the outcome you're, you're trying to get at here. But if it's student disruption, which is one of the things they looked at there, you know, there are simpler ways to do that, I think, too. Well, I guess if there's any comfort here for the mindfulness folks, it's that um, the fact that it's hard to define means we won't be able to ban it. Right. So. <laughs> oh, someone will try. Keep doing it wherever you are. All right, gang, that's all the time we've got. So until next week. I'm David Griffith. And I'm Mike Petrilli at the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, signing off. 
The Education Gapfly Show is a production of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, located in Washington, D.C. For more information, visit us online at fordhaminstitute.org.